So we're going to, we've been marching through John 7. It's a long chapter. We're not going to finish it this morning, but we are going in it neck deep tonight or this morning. It's great. You know, you, this probably says a whole lot about me and about my tastes or lack thereof, but I still really enjoy that 1998 movie with Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker, Rush Hour. Anyone with me? Okay, okay, right? It's, it's almost like this slapstick comedy. Uh, apparently, there's actually a lot of people who like this movie because they made a Rush Hour 2 and a Rush Hour 3 and a Rush Hour 4, and they also just made a TV series out of it, okay? So if you don't like it, you're the one in the minority, okay? Um, it is about this, this Chinese cop and this Los Angeles Police Department cop, and they're trying to solve a kidnapping, at least in the first movie, and, and the comedy that has to do with, with these cultural differences between the U.S. and China, okay? At one point, Chris Tucker looks at Jackie Chan, and, and by the way, how can you not like Jackie Chan? with all of his, his karate moves, okay? Um, at one point, Chris Tucker says to Jackie Chan, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And it's funny, because Jackie Chan doesn't understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. Um, you know, I wonder actually if Jesus feels the same way towards us. I wonder if he would say, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth, people? And I ask that question because this morning in our passage in John 7, we still see great confusion about what Jesus says. And it makes us pause and ask, do we believe the words that are coming out of Jesus? Do we believe what Jesus is saying? That's our goal this morning as we look at John 7, verses 32 to 39. That's right, just, just those little verses, right? Sometimes that's not even an introduction, but that's all we're going. And so remember, we're, uh, the, the Gospel of John is all about who is Jesus. He is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited-for Messiah sent from heaven, sent from the Father, who has come to give life by the giving of his own life, for all who would believe in him. And so the goal of the Gospel of John is not to give just a historical overview of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is to call us to faith. It is to call us that, that we can't just think true things about Jesus. We are called to follow him with our very lives. Not just on visitation day, which is Sunday morning, but on every day of the week. And so we've been working on our first of the series, John 6:40. We have this week and next week to memorize this thing, y'all, okay? So here let's Andy is taking it. Okay, okay. He was he was making you guys sweat a little bit. Let's say John 6:40 together. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Ah, oh, praise the Lord for that. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Heavenly Father, help us today to not have confusion, but clarity about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And that we would hear his invitation 
that we would come and find life in him. So, Father, do a good work through John 7, by your Spirit, in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you an overview of where we're headed this morning. Here's the big idea. I've realized that I now live through big ideas. Okay, I was teaching adult discipleship hour this morning, and I was asking people to give me uh, a summary of the passage in 10 words or less with an action verb in it. And I realized, yep, okay, I live by big ideas. So here's the big idea this morning that we want you to walk away with. Okay, here it is. Come to Jesus and find life. Because he's available today, but doesn't promise tomorrow. Come to Jesus and find life because he is available today, but doesn't promise tomorrow. So we're going to just look at this kind of in two parts this morning. In verses 32 to 36, Jesus here today, but gone tomorrow. And then verses 37 to 39, Jesus's invitation. That's the structure of where we're going. Let me read what John records for us, beginning in verse 32. And here's what John writes. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Well, we've been in John chapter 7 for a few weeks, but it is important to reorient ourselves to the context of what's going on. Remember, this is the Feast of Booths, uh, the most popular of the Jewish feasts. Okay, this is where thousands and thousands of, of, uh, of people are flocking into Jerusalem to celebrate that God had provided for them, both in the wilderness... Uh, you, you guys think of, of all the years that Israel was in the wilderness. They're celebrating that. They're remembering God's faithful provision there and God's faithful provision for this past year in their crops. And there has been this discussion about Jesus' miracles and about the teachings that he's had. And some believe that he is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the long-awaited promised one from God who would rescue and redeem Israel. He's the promised one from heaven. And one of the most lingering questions that's being murmured around this crowd is, is from verse 31 that we looked at last week. It says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so those murmurings had made it all the way to the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests' ears, the, the religious rulers who were against Jesus and were seeking opportunities to kill him. The murmurings were so strong that it was time for the religious leaders to sign the arrest warrant. 
the, the murmurings were not going away. And so these temple guards were kind of like the temple police force. Okay, so if Jesus was still teaching in the temple area, like he was, like we saw last week, then they would not have to go very far to get him. Now, so we see that these officers are sent out to arrest Jesus. Uh, We'll find out next week what happens with that whole scenario. But but it seems like right at the time that Jesus knows that, that, that his arrest warrant is going out, Jesus... Uh, we, we, we see what, what, what Jesus says about it. You know, it's interesting. Instead of John uh, telling us that, that Jesus ran, it's really interesting to me that, that Jesus didn't hide. Okay? He wasn't afraid of the religious rulers, uh, but Jesus was bold in his mission. Right in the middle of a very popular festival, Jesus risks upsetting large amounts of people. He's risking upsetting uh, the religious authorities, upsetting his family. Remember, his brothers think he's crazy at this point. And yet Jesus' resolve is not to stop going after the people who misunderstand who he is, but are desperately in need of him. You know, I wonder what category you might put yourself in. It certainly would have been easier if Jesus had just stayed home. It would have been easier if Jesus didn't make all this commotion. But the mission of God was to send Jesus to rescue the lost. How are the lost found if there isn't someone looking for them? How do the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd if he isn't calling out for them. But in our passage, we have people who are murmuring about these incredible signs that Jesus has done. And we also have those who are trying to stop Jesus. And we have those who are just doing the bidding of those who are trying to stop Jesus. So the religious authorities have already made it clear they don't want Jesus to be the center of attention, And they definitely don't want the people to believe he's the long-awaited Messiah. I wonder what category you put yourself in today. Are you someone who is looking at the signs of Jesus and convinced he's the Messiah? That's probably many of us in this room this morning. We should remind ourselves that because people are not neutral towards Jesus, Jesus, there will be in our lives, if you are a Christian, there will be people who try to stop the message of Jesus from going out. Some of it is more overt than others, but often it's, it's fine for you to believe whatever you want to believe in the privacy of your home, but don't you dare bring that religion on me. That seems to be the religious context that we often find ourselves in today. And there's a lot that could be said about only privately following Jesus. But one thing is clear, and that is following Jesus isn't only private. Our expression of following Jesus is an everyday reality because relationships are not a -a once-a-week visitation. Christian, the boldness of Jesus not hiding, but seeking 
to proclaim the kingdom of God, even in the midst of those who are seeking to arrest him, should inspire us to boldly live lives following Jesus. Are you possibly someone, maybe instead, who, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, are actually seeking to stop Jesus? Right? These nutty religious Jesus followers are going to mess up our world if they follow like Jesus. Well, please know that Jesus was alive 2,000 years ago, and we're still talking about his kingdom that has no end. Because the kingdom of God is unstoppable. Hearing of this official warrant, in verse 33, Jesus then starts speaking about his imminent departure. He says, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. As those who know the second part of this history, we know that Jesus is referring to this short time before he goes to the cross. His time on earth is short. In, in six months from this passage, Jesus would be going to the cross. Jesus' cross and burial and resurrection and then ascension back up to heaven is the method for Jesus to return to the Father, to the one who sent him. And so death is not, for Jesus, the end, but the return to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. Yet it was the payment for sin that brought Jesus to earth in the first place, isn't it? If his primary mission was to just get as many followers as possible, he probably should have waited until Twitter and Instagram was around, because it's really easy to generate followers on that. No, Jesus' mission was to rescue the lost and to redeem the broken. And he did so by going to the cross, by taking our shame, by taking our guilt, by taking our punishment for sin, and thereby rescuing us. With the accomplishment of the mission, though, comes with a warning. There will be a day when people who had the opportunity to walk with Jesus and will want to walk with Jesus, but he'll be gone. They may search, but he has already returned to heaven, to the Father, to the one who sent him. So there's a purposefulness to the kingdom of God. Jesus was here one day, but gone the next because he was on the mission to seek and save the lost. And so knowing this, we should not miss the opportunity while we have it. There was a time when Jesus was here, and then he is gone. There is a time coming when he will return, and then it will be too late to decide to follow him. There's a timeliness to the kingdom of God, and that time is now. And again, Jesus' words are misunderstood here. The crowd 
who thinks that they know all that there is to know about Jesus and where he comes from cannot imagine that Jesus can take himself somewhere that they could not find him again if they chose to do so. They are again missing that Jesus is not simply from Galilee. He was sent from the Father. And so there's a lack of clarity. If they think that Jesus is just going to go among the, the Greek-speaking Jews or, or among the Gentiles, the, the, the Greek's not super clear there. But there's a lot of irony in their understanding, actually. Uh, because they're, they're wondering, oh, where is Jesus going to go? Where is he going to go teach? And the reality is, ultimately, the message of Jesus does go to the Gentiles, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, I wonder if Jesus would look at us and say, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Do we misunderstand Jesus? I understand that these religious leaders in our passage are misunderstanding Jesus because they don't see him as the Messiah. And therefore, they do not understand him returning to the Father. But I also think it's worth noting that their misunderstanding is also tied to their own agenda for Jesus. They want to stop Jesus so that they can arrest him. Their misunderstanding of Jesus, where can he go where we can't find him, is tied to the reality that they have their own plans for Jesus. I wonder if we might un misunderstand Jesus at times because of our own agenda for Jesus that doesn't match his. So just to be clear, Jesus does call us to repent from our rebellion against him and to believe in the gospel. Jesus really does call us as his followers to take up our crosses daily and follow him. Jesus is not calling us to a system of beliefs that doesn't transform our lives. We are to actually grow more like Jesus as we seek intimacy with God and live on mission for the kingdom of God. And I think that oftentimes that is a misunderstood idea about Christianity. Because we say we are saved by faith alone, which is true. We are not justified by the things that we do. We are saved by the finished work of Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb. And yet, the next part that we often say is, therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. Therefore, I can believe in him in my mind, but not live for him in my life. Well, friends, we would be misunderstanding Jesus then. We'd be misunderstanding what it means to follow Jesus. We are called to actually grow more like Jesus as we seek intimacy with God and live on mission with the kingdom of God. So the call for us is to come to Jesus and find life because he's available today but doesn't 
promise tomorrow. Let's look at this next part in our passage, verses 37 to 39. Jesus' invitation. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those, or whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, I'm so thankful for, for John's commentary there that really helps us see what's going on. So remember, this is now at the end of the Feast of Booths. There's this great day. It's the peak of the celebration. There's thousands upon thousands of people in the temple area. And if we look back to John 7, the beginning of it, John tells us that this is the Jews' Feast of Booths. Now remember, John clues us into which feast it is when there is something significant about what Jesus is doing that points to the fulfillment of what that celebration is. So in John chapter 6, John mentions that it's the Passover feast. But remember in John 5, there was a feast that we don't know what it was because John was not trying to tie uh, its understanding to what Jesus was doing. But in John 6 with the Passover feast, yes, John was tying the work of Jesus with what was happening at the Passover. And here in John 7, by mentioning that this is the Feast of Booths, John is trying to tie in what's happening with the Feast of Booths and what Jesus is doing and how they are importantly connected. Part of the Feast of Booths involved this water celebration. Okay, the ceremony reminded uh, Jewish minds of the Lord's provision of water in the desert, like like we read about in, in Numbers 20 this morning. And it's also a sign in the Old Testament of the Lord pouring out of his spirit in the last days. And so what they would do is they'd take this golden jar and they'd, they'd go down to the pool of Siloam and they would fill it and they would carry this golden jar filled with water and they'd carry it in a procession that's led by the high priest back to the temple. And as the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, there'd be these three blasts from trumpets that were sounded. And the priests would walk around the altar with the golden jar with water, and and there'd be this temple choir singing. In fact, they would sing Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. They'd be singing this. And then when the, when the choir would get to Psalm 118, it'd be right when the priest was going to pour out this water. And then everyone who had, had brought, came into Jerusalem for this feast, everyone who's watching this would then take part and they would all cry out together and sing out, give thanks to the Lord. They do it three times. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. And then the water would be poured out before the Lord and into the silver bowl. And it's during that ritual that Jesus stands up in verse 37. And he says, If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So in the midst of thousands of people watching the high priest ready to pour out the water, Jesus is saying he is the living water. Boy, isn't that significant? Uh, for, for us who are like, I, I have no idea what happens in the Feast of Booths. Uh, for those of us who've never participated in one, all of a sudden we're like, oh, what Jesus is saying is kind of a big deal, isn't it? It's a huge deal here. Jesus is giving application to what's happening at this festival. The idea of the quenching of thirst connects with the period that they're remembering with the Feast of Booths. Israel's wilderness wanderings, they were constantly looking for water. And these wanderings were marked time and time again in the Old Testament with repeated times of thirst and miraculous provisions of water. And now, Jesus stands and invites anyone to come to him and to find this miraculous provision for their lives. Notice the openness of Jesus' invitation. If anyone thirsts, Jesus is not inviting the, the elite or a certain social class. In fact, Jesus is calling out for anyone to hear. Whatever your age, whatever your status in life, Jesus' invitation is open to anyone. But there's a requirement. Do you see that? We have to thirst. If anyone thirsts. It's clear that there were people in that crowd that heard the words of Jesus but had no concept of being thirsty for what they needed. In plain language, you have to know you have a problem that you can't fix yourself. In real life, some people have something called hypodipsia, uh, which includes the absence, the, the symptoms of it include the absence, the absence of knowing that you're thirsty. Can you imagine that for a second? There are people who have this condition, and part of the symptoms is that they never know if they're thirsty or not. So they never know if their body's dehydrated or not. Well, friends, we can actually have spiritual hypodipsia. Jesus is calling out for anyone who thirsts. But we might not even realize our need to drink. Now, if we know our Old Testament well, the call to anyone who is thirsty to come and to drink might bring us back to Isaiah 55. But with the combination of the Feast of Booths in mind, our minds should actually go to Zechariah 14, which is a passage that was, that's actually read on the first day of the Feast of Booths. And Zechariah 14 predicts the victorious return of the Messiah to the Mount of Olives and to the establishment of his worldwide kingdom centered in Jerusalem. 
And interestingly enough, the blessings of this worldwide forever kingdom that's described in Zechariah 14 is a kingdom, get this, that will have living waters flowing out of Jerusalem, both during the summer and the winter. And so verse 16. I'm not sure that's correct. We're not in verse 16. Uh, oh, here's why, here's why. It's Zechariah 14. And so then Zechariah 14, verse 16, everyone who survives all the nations that have come against Israel, uh, they're going to go year after year up to worship the Lord, the King of hosts. And guess what they're going to do in Zechariah 14? they're going to continue to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And this feast won't be limited to Israelites. Finally, at the peace with Israel, all the nations of the world will unite in this annual festival of praise, looking back on everything that God has done in Christ to provide for his people. So the Feast of Booths is being connected with the coming of the Lord. The Feast of Booths is connected with God pouring out his blessing on his people once again. Notice the direction of Jesus' invitation. If anyone thirsts, Jesus says, let him come to me. Jesus doesn't direct them to the priests. He doesn't direct them to anywhere else but himself. Jesus and Jesus alone is the living water that we need. And as the priests are pouring out the water from that golden jar, Jesus is saying, I'm the true source of life. His water can quench our spiritual thirst. He is the only source of soul satisfaction. Notice also the action of Jesus' invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus invites us to drink, to receive exactly what we need since we realize we have the thirst. Jesus' pronouncement is really clear. He is the fulfillment that the Feast of Booths have, has been anticipating. For year after year after year, thousands of people were going to Jerusalem, anticipating, not just celebrating what God has done in the past, but looking forward to what God would do again to his people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Feast of Booths is anticipating. Isn't that incredible? And then notice the promise of Jesus' invitation. Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, meaning those who know that they are thirsty and come to Jesus, will receive the promise. And the promise is that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, what is the living water? Thankfully, John tells us 
in verse 39. Now he's now this he said about the Spirit, the Spirit of God, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the rivers of living water is the Spirit of God, given to everyone who believes in him who knows that they are thirsty and are looking to be quenched by Jesus. And remember, at that point in Jesus' ministry, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Right? So, so we learn later on in the, in the New Testament that the Spirit is only given once Jesus ascends back up into heaven. Right? And Jesus says it's actually to our benefit that he goes away so that the helper, the spirit, would come and lead us in all truth. And so uh, the spirit had not yet been given at this point in the Gospels because Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. He'd not yet died, he'd not yet risen, and he had not yet ascended back into heaven. Jesus had not yet taken the punishment for our sins. Now we live after Jesus' death and after his resurrection, after his ascension. And so we live in a time where the Spirit of God is given to everyone who believes. So what Jesus is talking about by this metaphor is what all of the Old Testament passages have been anticipating. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus would minister satisfaction by pouring out of his Spirit into his new covenant community. God is so committed to his people that through the Spirit of God, he takes residence with them. Is that incredible? This water pouring ceremony during the feast is a foretaste of the rivers of living water promised by Jesus of the Holy Spirit. And so when we read things like Zechariah 13, that on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Ultimately, that's pointing to the Spirit of God. Or even in Numbers 20, our scripture reading this morning. How interesting that the image of flowing water had been around Israel from the very beginning. And all of them point forward to what God does through Jesus and the sending of his spirit. Isn't that incredible? Maybe you're here this morning and you think, I don't even know who Jesus is. I'm not sure if any of this stuff is incredible. What a great place for you to be this morning. We are delighted that you are here. Uh, the call for all of us is to go to Jesus and receive him. Notice his invitation is for anyone who thirsts to come to him and to drink. That invitation is open 
for you. That invitation is open for you who are still skeptical about Jesus. That invitation is open to all who thirst. Take him, receive him, make him your own. If you want to talk more about that, I'd love to connect with you after the service and talk about what does it mean to receive Jesus? What does it mean to go to him and to drink? And so if that's you, come find me after the service. Brothers and sisters, we should see in this passage that in all the different ways that we wonder about God's sufficiency and we wonder if God cares about what's going on, in all of our thirsts, which I think we can say are our cares of what's going on, we can go to Jesus because he cares for us. What a wonderful thing that we have a Savior who doesn't ignore our sufferings, who doesn't ignore our problems, who doesn't ignore our, our sinful uh, ways. We have a Savior who invites us to come to him with our thirst. He doesn't say, you can come to me once you get rid of your thirst. He says, if you thirst, come to me and I will solve it. Come to Jesus and find life because he is available today. But he does not promise tomorrow. Let's not misunderstand Jesus. Let's take Jesus' words seriously. Let's, let's hear the invitation from the one who was sent by the Father who came to rescue and redeem by giving his life, by being raised on the third day, and then ascending back into heaven. Let's take his word seriously, who has now gone back to the Father, and let us hear with joy his invitation that says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a great promise from a great Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we too often think it's got to be harder than that. Too often we think that it, it can't really be that easy because my life is that messed up that, that all we have to do is admit our thirst and our need for Jesus and our inability to quench our thirst and Jesus' complete ability to help us. We think it couldn't possibly be that easy, and yet, Father, you promise it is. And you promise that you will even transform us from those who are dry and parched to out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. And so, Father, help us. Help us by faith to come to Jesus. Let us not wait a single moment. Let us not linger or wonder or just assume we can just do it next week. God, we are not promised tomorrow. And so, Father, help us see the timeliness of the kingdom today. 
Father, help us. Help us to not misunderstand Jesus, but to understand him fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.